Hello, my name is Makani Kikahuna, and welcome to the show. Okay, just uh, like to thank uh, Makani for that introduction. Yes, this is the Gino. Uh, I'm sorry, my name is Gino Ray. This is Native as I Can Be Between Two Cultures. Uh, got a special uh, episode today because I'm interviewing Kenji Nita once again, but Kenji Nita is interviewing me. So the, this will appear on my podcast and his podcast, which can be found all over the place by looking up uh, Kenji Nita. Um, we initially started to talk about uh, activism, protesting, things like that. We kind of went all over the place, but kind of circled back uh, to activism. Um, pretty interesting stuff. Kenji's always a blast to talk to and uh, so smart and knowledgeable. And um, I just try to keep up. So uh, it's a pretty good episode. We talk about uh, American Indian movement and, uh, of course, activism in the Bible, which is the Bible, of course, is his forte. And uh, we touch on some stuff. So um, check it out. Thank you for listening. Uh, Thanks for uh, uh, participating in this journey with me. And uh, without further ado, this is me and Kenji Nita talking about activism. Let's go. So today on the show, I have Gino Ray, and we're going to talk about whatever we feel like. But uh, um, so you guys can kind of get an idea of who Gino is and what his background is. Gino, can you just kind of introduce yourself? And uh, you have your own podcast, so tell us about that, too, and and why that exists. Well, wait a minute. Am I on your podcast or are you on my podcast? Either way. Uh Okay. Yeah, I was leaving I, it like I was you were on the, mine, but if you want me on yours, we can do that too. Yeah, I I, uh, I was under the impression it was a mutual podcasting going on. So cool. Um, yeah, so I'm Gino Ray, and I have a podcast called uh, Native as I Can Be. It's uh, pretty new. I'm only a couple months into it, and it's basically um, the original idea was it's a podcast about myself being half indian half white half klamath indian uh half white and trying to find my place within white culture or native culture and uh just trying to figure out how to live in that void and properly represent my culture uh without really knowing a lot about my culture Mm. um but what I found out as I've went along is that idea of uh, existing in, in kind of a void between cultures. It doesn't just apply to race. Um, and so the I've looked into, uh, you know, being interracial, being in an interracial relationship and uh, being transgendered. Um, just you know, and I have an adoption episode next week um, about transracial adoption, and you know, just any kind of. And I think what people relate to that maybe aren't mixed race is just that idea of not fitting in fully in in one environment or the other. 
so the focus of your show sounds like kind of kind of that space when two worlds collide or or maybe when someone's trying to find a home in one culture or another right and of course you've lived that to yourself huh well yeah absolutely because um i uh grew up with my mom who was white and my sisters who are white and would uh see my you know indian family on spring break and summer break and would be trying to uh just learn native culture sort of by osmosis by going to powwows and just you know really being around my people who Mm -hmm. i wasn't necessarily comfortable being around so um and then going back to uh this town i lived in reedsport which is a pretty white town and being one of the only brown people there and uh so they didn't have like they don't have a lot of Mexicans or black people or anybody. It was just mostly Caucasian. Yeah, mostly Caucasian. It's just kind of a small little logging community that's mm. a couple miles inland from the Pacific Ocean. Um, but yeah, it's definitely pretty white. And uh, I, I did my best to represent Native culture, but I, I didn't really know what I was doing. I just mm. it was it was it was more or less pretending to be native and and using it to kind of stand out you know so I, you, I was uh did you identify more with your native culture when you were in in the white city or did you more identify with white culture uh no i i don't i don't think i identified more with native culture i think i just identified less with white culture gotcha yeah just the, the things that the people around me were into and and I don't know if I can necessarily say they're white things, hunting, fishing, that kind of thing, but it's just not stuff I was into. And, Neil Diamond? Uh, right, Neil Diamond. <laughs> some of that music, yeah. I mean, they, these guys, like, you know, when Vanilla Ice came out, they absolutely flipped. And I was already way into hip-hop by then, and I was like, this stuff is kind of a joke. Like, <laughs> yeah. what are you guys doing, you know? but. To them, yeah, it was like David Bowie like, Queen sample was pretty sick, but the rest of it was kind of ridiculous. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but they were psyched about it. They were kind of like, yes, finally, you know, one of us. <laughs> we got one in there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I grew up, uh, I never knew my dad. I was half Japanese. Um, I am half Japanese and half Caucasian. And so I grew up with my brother and my mom. And uh, it was weird because when I was eight, we moved into these housing projects and it was mostly Mexicans. And, uh, you know, um, I don't know, I identified a lot with Mexicans. And so then when I went into predominantly white culture in some places, like at school and stuff, it was a lot of white people. I don't know, I felt like I identified with a minority a lot. And then I moved into Cheney, Washington. And uh, Cheney was a very white school, but there's a a strong native culture there because it uh, used to be a res and it's close to a res now. And so when I lived there... uh, this family kind of took me in. They're called the Daniels. That was their last name. And um, they're all Indian. And so I kind of identified with that culture a lot. And it's kind of weird because I've spent a lot of time in Caucasian culture. And I feel comfortable there. But uh, I identify quite a bit with whatever minorities happen to be around me for some reason. It's kind of a weird place to be. Yeah, totally. And uh, and I found that yeah with with sort of any minority group that that i encountered because i just felt uh maybe if i didn't understand the culture right away i at least think that they understood the idea of being a little bit um 
uh, not center. Mm. That's a good way to put it. So now that you're uh, exploring all these multicultural issues, um, what's, what's that been into your view on the world? Because, you know, you've kind of lived it a little bit, but now it seems like intentionally you're, you're diving deep into all these identity issues and cultural issues. And, you know, you mentioned earlier how culture is a lot more than just race. Of course it is. You know, there's all kinds of things. It's, it's so multivariate and, and layered and complicated what, what makes a culture. But uh, what, what are some of the things you're learning and you're picking up on? Well, like I was saying that, uh this this idea of uh i i I don't know i don't want to say being an outsider that's a little too strong i think wording but just that a lot of people kind of feel like they aren't um quite on the inside and uh i had a conversation with a guy i mentioned in my last podcast we had this dope conversation and i didn't record any of it and it, it was it was so embarrassing. We talked for an hour, and I was getting ready to wrap it up. And I said, "All right, let's uh, good to talk." Oh shit! Son of a- <laughs> he goes, he goes, tell me you recorded all that. And I was like, eh. <laughs> you know, but so that guy, uh, his name was uh, his name is Rembrandt Street, and um, that's his real name. And it sounds yeah. like something out of a romance novel, that's but he's an a. Awesome uh, name. Yeah, it's killer, and he's a uh, Shoshone Paiute Indian, and but he grew up on the Navajo reservation, and he was talking to me about, you know, you're you're on a reservation with seemingly your own people, and he would catch heat from Navajos about not being Navajo, oh. and he knew more about um, Navajo traditions than uh, Shoshone Paiute traditions because that's what he grew up around, and. You know, this idea that, you know, this really all is kind of a social construct and there's really, you know, and, and people can go take all the DNA tests they want. But uh, this idea that we have to, and, and by we, I mean natives, um, have to kind of prove ourselves with this blood quantum is kind of ridiculous. But, uh, and that all goes so far back. That yeah. that's that that has to do with um, you know land rights and the more Indian you were the the more land trust you were uh, gave and and as it started to become less and you know it's just this so um, that's what's going on with natives and it's and it's something I've experienced too being half is this kind of infighting that has to do with what tribe and how much and it's um it's it's nothing we created but that we seem to stick to so what's, so can you give me a quick lowdown on kind of like what the um for for native americans what's been their the fight for identity like i know with black people they've had black panthers and different kinds of you know when i was in high school cross colors came out do you remember cross colors yeah, the brand. absolutely. And you know, although all my black friends were wearing these big African medallions at the end of these necklaces on their necks, you know, mm-hmm. and it was kind of a push to return to become more African American. So I know different people kind of or different cultures negotiate that differently when you know they're kind of being what's the word involuntarily assimilated, you know, into another culture. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, what's some of that been like for Native American people and First Nations folks? Well, I think what's happened 
as far as I can tell, is so we're all subdivided into these tribes. And, uh, you know, you could have, you know, where my tribe is from, Klamath Falls in that area, um, southern Oregon, there's actually three tribes down there, the Modoc, the Yahooskin, and the Klamath. And uh, they at times got along and at times didn't get along. Uh, but the tribes have, have all kind of become subdivided, or they are subdivided, but they all kind of um, – a lot of the cultures and traditions have sort of blended together mm. and you know the kind of the joke is is that we've all become um plains indians with mm. headdresses and uh you know the powwows are kind of the same wherever you go and um yeah. which is all fine and um but i think we're we're losing some specific traditions in the uh just through time and we're all kind of identifying as the same. So this idea that uh, we're kind of picking on each other when we're all, we're all one is mm. um, it's a little ridiculous, but it, it also makes sense. Like um, one of the knocks my tribe got was in the seventies there, they were trying to enact this plan to start to no longer recognize um, tribes as being like sovereign nations and the Klamath was one of the earliest tribes they did that to and they called it termination and uh and even that name was just so cold and brutal huh yeah and um, did you say this was in the 70s yeah okay um the idea being that you know we're not going to recognize you as a tribe what was not said was if we don't recognize you as a tribe, we don't have to honor any treaties with you as a tribe. Mm. That was what was underneath, uh, under the flowery language. But the, the goal being that they would um, assimilate and they would become members of the United States and everything would be fine. And meanwhile, they're going to buy up a lot of Klamath land, which they did. Um and I'm going to have an episode on my pod podcast about this because there's a lot to it. Uh, but basically, there was kind of these sort of backdoor deals to to get all this to happen with the Klamath tribe where they sold tons of land. And everybody in the tribe at the time got like $28,000 or something, which in the 70s was quite a bit of money, yeah. um, especially to people that never had it. Uh, and then, of course... Um, if you've never had that kind of money, you can easily misspend it. Right, you just blow it all, huh? Yeah, and yeah. then they were they were running stories. Uh, I've seen these in old newspaper clippings about these, you know, these wild Indians running around with paper sacks full of money and holding these days long parties and wrecking cars, and um, so basically, this termination was completely devastating to the tribe. Mm -hmm. um, so was this the U.S. government buying up all this land and giving them money? Yeah, gotcha. exactly. And um, so the Klamath tribe went from being one of the, the wealthiest as far as owning land and owning timber to one of the poorest, you know, almost overnight. And um, on top of that, they kind of 
I mean, they were still Klamath Indians, but they couldn't really call themselves Klamath anymore. Because mm. as far as the government was concerned, that tribe no longer existed. Yeah. And, and, and so the knock on the Klamath tribe from other tribes is that we sold out. Like we gave up our heritage and our name for money mm. without really knowing the whole story. Right. Uh, you know, kind of the people that were there and remember it. Um, the whole story is really, uh, it's hard to get the whole story because mm. like I was saying, the, the moves that were made to, to make this happen were done by people that didn't have the tribe's best interest in mind. And that was people within the tribe in some cases. So what are, what are the Klamath doing now to kind of preserve their culture and their heritage? Like, um, did they speak some kind of Salish, or what's the language that the Klamath spoke? Uh, they do have their own. We have our own language, and not a whole lot of people speak it. And we do have. Um, we are recognized as a tribe again. We went through a lot to go through and and mm-hmm. be federally recognized. And every year in August, we have a we call it a restoration powwow, uh, just to honor that. Um, that happening um but we kind of have the we have a casino and we have uh, a like a truck stop mm-hmm. and that's not necessarily to preserve heritage that's to just try and get us back on our feet a little bit yeah make some money um, so we can stay alive right yeah yeah um but yeah there's a there's like a a klamath language cl- uh klamath language class every week down there in klamath falls um and then the restoration powwow um Basically, they and then and then as far as the land rights and stuff, they've been in a battle over that, and more specifically the water rights, um, since the eighties, because uh, Klamath Falls and the Klamath Reservation is down there on the Klamath Basin, and it's this massive area of old growth timber and Klamath Lake. I mean, it's a nice, you know, property, mm-hmm. and and they're. They've been in a battle for years to to get all that back, and they've had some success, not not a hundred percent, but um, uh, I think both sides are meeting in the middle a little more than they were. So it's kind of some of the <clears throat> like the sociological stuff we were talking about earlier, like rivalry between tribes and stuff. Is that like me and my brother where we'd fight with each other, but if somebody else was messing with the family, we joined together and opposed them? Or is it so deep that, like a lot of the tribes won't won't feel like they're in the united front against uh, the encroaching culture? I think it's the former. I, I think it's. I don't know if any of it is uh, too serious. I think it's. It is. It's kind of like. I don't. You know, nobody's ever called my tribe a sellout. Like they wanted to fight me or something, or that they right. were. You know, it was always just like, oh, dude, your your tribe sold out. Whatever, dude. You don't know, you know, and uh, and that can go to the level of, you know, me not growing up on a reservation. Like, you meet somebody that did, and they like to, you know, give you your ration of shit for not, you know, not growing up on the res. Like I, like I somehow chose that. Yeah. But ultimately, I mean, if if I think we're all still brothers in 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 that we would we would stand up for each other and if uh, we had to unify i'm pretty sure we would i have friends who grew up on you know a res and they would they would call 
Indians who grew up in the city, they'll call them apples or things like something like that, you know, like red on the outside, but white on the inside. Yeah. Apple Indians. Yeah. Yeah. So with all these different responses to the encroaching culture we've been talking about and Native Americans trying to preserve their identity and stuff, what, what's, you know, um, I talked about black people wearing the Africa chain and uh, Black Panthers before that. What are some of the things that have happened in Native American culture to kind of try and, um, I guess, cultural activism, you know, to keep their identity alive or just different reactions to to them feeling threatened and feeling like their identity is just going to dissipate and disappear? Well, I think the late 60s were, uh, you know, a critical time for activism in this country because, you know, there was a whole generation of people protesting, mm-hmm. it, it seemed like. And, um, and of course, you had the Black Panthers and, and sort of one of the lesser known is the American Indian Movement. Um, and that was formed in 1968 in Minnesota. And at the time, they were... Um, they were kind of hardcore. They actually occupied Alcatraz Island for almost two years, I think it was. And it wasn't two years, they just took possession of the island, yeah. And it wasn't, yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't operating as a prison at the time, it had been closed. But you know, they were like, We're taking this island, we're gonna go and we're gonna live on it. And they had, they were actually, um, broadcasting a radio show from. Alcatraz why it was while it was being occupied That's um, and there's this dude his name is John Trudell he's one of the I don't know if you ever meet people or or heard people that when you hear them riffing like they're riffing stuff that's more intelligent than you could ever dream of considering thinking about like no matter how much you prepare you'll yeah. never sound as, as smart as them off the cuff huh yeah, and yeah, totally. So his name's John Trudell, and he actually did a a folk album. I can't think of the name of it, but he's just this amazing speaker, and he was kind of the guy at the helm of the the radio show. And uh, powerful enough were his words that he was actually being watched by the FBI for quite a while because they considered him a, a dangerous person just because of how he spoke in. His ability to um, uh, inspire people, mm. and um, and that was a crazy time too, because that's Vietnam War, and and you know so much cultural revolution happened in the sixties, and the Bay Area was like a foment for that kind of activity, right? Right, and yeah. and Oakland is still uh, there's still a lot of natives in Oakland, um, and and the natives that were kind of in this American Indian movement were a lot were mostly kind of city natives. Natives that had left the reservation and went out into the world and weren't having any luck. You know, yeah. they were still kind of being uh, not treated very fair. Um, so the so AIM was uh, was the movement at the time, and and they did uh, they took over a naval base in in Minnesota. They took over the Bureau of Indian Affairs building for a while. They took over a dam in Wisconsin and I mean they would just go and and when they took over um Bureau of Indian Affairs I mean that's not like a 
abandoned building. I mean, that was a functioning, uh, you know, government operation at the time. Yeah. And the, they did the, uh, uh, you know, like the upside down American flag flying out outside and they put desks over all the windows. And I mean, it was a big deal. Um, so what, what was their goal in taking these things over? Was it just raising awareness or were they hoping to kind of ignite ignite more of a, a, a movement, you know, and get an identity going or you, what was their agenda? Well, that's where I'm not sure because. Uh, or were they just pissed and they wanted to light stuff on fire? I think it's all of that. And, yeah. and this is, this is the part of activism that I, I don't understand is I, you know, I, you know, and part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast and and before when it was a documentary was I wanted to raise awareness of of what things was, what things are going on in in native uh, life and on mm-hmm. reservations and mm-hmm. you know why are teen suicide rates higher and why you know why are there more missing and murdered indigenous women than any other ethnicity? I mean things and are that's not by far right. Yeah, and and so things are not right, and I wanted to shine a light on these things mm-hmm. and go oh by the way that um not only are there still natives around by the way in case you had forgotten but things are things are uh not the way they should be mm-hmm. um so as far as um <clears throat> activism i think yeah we want to shine a light on that and i guess affect change but i don't know how you get the change by taking over alcatraz island like yeah. I don't know how to connect those two dots, and that's where I've, that's where I've always struggled with activism, and why I've never been much of an activist because I don't understand the process. And maybe mm-hmm. if I were more involved, I would. But and yeah, then I, it's I have a hard time with that too because, you know, activism by definition is action. You know, and uh, <clears throat> I don't know. For me, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between just people whining and people actually being activists. And yeah. That sounds like a shallow assessment, but just being honest here. To me, it seems like a, a lot of people, you know, anger is a common reaction when you feel helpless. It's like, guys, when we're angry, we break stuff. And yeah. psychologically, we're shown we have mastery over the thing we broke. And the reason we do that is because we don't have mastery over the actual thing we need it over, you know. And so we get frustrated, we get angry. We, But what I see now with, with a lot of protests or like – um you know the the heckling that happens and a lot of stuff going to me it seems like a if it's not raising awareness to me it doesn't feel like it's it feels like a lot of anger and then a lot of breaking stuff and saying things but i don't see a lot of actually doing things happen and to me sometimes i get the impression that people get a false sense of activism by protesting that they think they've actually accomplished something because they have this human experience of becoming one with a group, you know, and that's a very powerful experience and one with a cause maybe, but, but I don't know where, where the action is at. Like, what, what are they doing with it? And, um, you know, I, I'm responsible for some, a lot of levels of activism actually being a spiritual leader in the faith community. And so one question I always have to ask myself is, you know, cause Christians are known for just being complainers, you know, just, yeah. uh, saying, the gays are wrong, the Democrats are wrong, and, you know, we need to vote in people who will overturn Roe versus Wade. And we're known to be very closed-minded, loud, bigoted, one-issue people. And so uh, my question is, like, how do I help Christians live lives to where it actually helps things, where it actually changes things? 
but my impression is a lot of activism. It seems like it, it might even prevent activism because the protesting give people a, a false sense of accomplishment and a false sense of involvement in something where they actually haven't done or caused any action really at all. All they do is get together with a group and, and have a group experience and complain about stuff, and then they went home. And that's uh, that's my gut-level reaction to a lot of what people claim to be activism now is it? It just seems like a lot of a lot of bitching, but not a lot of actually doing stuff. Well, and I think in the uh, the modern era of the ultra short attention span, I you know, and if you're watching the news and you see a clip of these people trashing some part of town or waving their, you know, if that's what people are seeing, that's I think the majority is not going to be moved by that. Mm. I think they're going to see a, a group of people upset about something and probably think that uh, it's not valid, mm. you know, that or or like like we're saying that they're not going about it the right way. And that's kind of happened. It happened with Black Panthers and it happened with American Indian movement where the groups um, kind of splinter because some people want to they think the change comes in office and mm. other people think the change yeah. needs to come with guns or or whatever and um with yeah, those I know, two uh, a little bit about martin luther king and his his activism and he had a hard time convincing people to say pacifists and a lot of a lot of people just broke off and decided to go the violent route and that's what you're saying now right that a lot of people want the same goal but the way to accomplish that goal, they just disagree quite a bit about it. Yeah. So the American Indian movement, did that, how, is it still a movement? Or if it's not, how come it fizzled out? And how did that play out? Uh, it's still around. Um, I think it's more of a, I don't know. I, I don't want to call it like a nostalgia act, but I think it's just, it's just the name. The name mm. is still here. And I, I think they're, they're doing more things like, you know, let's do a charity run or let's do a food drive. And it's not quite as uh, aggressive as it used to be. And that's because some of those people that started it ba back then, they're just not around anymore. Mm. You know, I mean, that was a long time ago. And yeah. uh, so, I mean, it's still around and, and I'm sure you could find, uh, you know, an American Indian movement instagram page if you were looking but i don't think the vibe is the same and i don't think uh i doubt the goals are the same mm. i think it's probably now like i belong to american mm. indian movement because i'm i'm proud of being native but i don't know that it's um it's out there uh rocking the boat any gotcha yeah activism is a tricky thing huh cultural change is not easy yeah and i remember uh, i mean and i have like a I have a Standing Rock t-shirt, you know, and I have a shirt that says, uh, it's one of my favorite to wear too. It says, make American, make America native again. <laughs> and it's, it's got a picture of a sitting bowl with like a kind of a fake, you know, make America great hat, yeah. but it says make America native again. And, <sighs> but that's as far as I go. I don't, I've never, you know, and uh, there was a, uh, a thing here in Portland yesterday because they just recently, got rid of columbus day and turned it into indigenous people's day mm -hmm. which is killer you know that's um 
that's that's great news. And they had a thing at City Hall, and I was like, eh, I don't want to drive downtown. You know, I don't, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to drive downtown on a Saturday. You know, so uh, yeah, and and like you. I would love to be more active in this stuff, but I'm like, man, there's two kids here. There's, there's work, you know, it's easy to find reasons to not be active. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't know. And this is really kind of the area, the era of being kind of a hashtag activist, yeah. you know, like black lives matter started as a hashtag and, uh, you know, no DAPL started as a hashtag mm-hmm. and, They've grown to where they have actual members, and but uh, that's kind of it. Seems where things are starting now. You don't need to. You don't need to occupy an island. You can kind of start a movement on Twitter. That seems like it, it's occupying an island is pretty radical, you know. But it it seems more committed and badass than just starting a hashtag to me. Like I'm not right. saying I agree with it, but you're definitely pretty much all in at that point. Right. I, do have a, I do have a friend whose girlfriend, she went and capped around the Dakota Pipeline site for long. She was there for months. That was getting tons of press for a while, and it seemed to be a catalyst for something. But then I just stopped hearing about it. Um, honestly, I don't even know how it resolved. I'm ashamed to say, but uh, what was going on with that, the DAPL stuff? Well, they had a pipeline that they wanted to put in and through North Dakota, and um, they... Uh, were concerned i think initially about environmental impact and then i uh, i'm not 100 percent certain but it might have been going through burial grounds mm-hmm. I, i'm not certain about that but it was definitely on the the uh standing rock reservation and and they didn't want it they didn't want it to be there and they they uh they they fought it and i think uh what's her name uh, there was a kid, Lindsay Lohan. No, not it Cher? wasn't the Lohans. No. <laughs> oh, it was I Dakota Dakota Iron Eyes or Takata something like that. Mm. She's a teenager, and she kind of started this respect our water thing, and then that's sort of where it all began. What ended up happening is I think they were able to put it off by filing lawsuits and injunctions and restraining orders and things like that to where it seemed like they had got it halted. But uh, our current president kind of came in and put the kibosh on all that. And I think it's, it's going, I think it's going in now because mm. I know Obama was against it and he had met with some people, uh, some of the organizers about uh, rerouting it or not putting it in at all. And, but I think Trump, gave him the go-ahead that's so people felt pretty much defeated and so that just kind of fizzled out then i think so and i you know i mean i know there were hundreds of arrests and you know every couple days there would be a video of uh i remember the one where it was sort of the middle of the night and they were spraying him with water hoses yeah you know i mean there was a freeze yeah i think one girl like she lost a a bunch of her hand too because they hit her with a high pressure hose and i think it just took a bunch of her flesh off I think I've yeah. never seen something like that. I mean, it wasn't was not pretty. So I think with that as a backdrop, you do have to kind of go, well, what was that all for then? You know, mm-hmm. we were out here, we fought and fought, and we stood our ground, and didn't matter. And I think maybe that's where you got you get the idea that it that that the change actually does have to occur in office because they're mm-hmm. the ones sort of with the pen that are making things happen. 
Yeah, it's hard though because <clears throat> to get that kind of power, you got to play the game, and you got to get good at playing the game. And it seems to me that by the time you're good at playing the game, you're a different person than when you started. And you might not be the kind of person, you know what I mean, that right that can stay committed to the original ideal. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud, but I'm not sure politics, um, for most people, is good for the soul. <laughs> no, it seems like a, a pretty fake existence. Yeah. And not a lot of... Um... Greasing palms and selling out to kind of get your way, and then you still might not get your way, or you might get your way in a compromised um, uh, version, something like that. Yeah, you know, the actually, since I'm speaking from like a, a churchy Christian perspective, when I first became a Christian, it was back in the late 90s, <clears throat> and I was already an adult, but I came into this kind of upper middle class boomer church, and they were totally into the religious right. And uh, for people to know, the religious right was a, a political movement where people were going to kind of take America back for God by legislating uh, good morality, basically is what it was. And, uh, man, they, they they tried to co-opt me into all that ide- ideology. And I, I just wasn't feeling it, you know, because I wasn't mm-hmm. from the world, so it didn't resonate with me. Yeah, that, that kind of activism, they tried that hardcore and um, there's a great book by Frances Fitzgerald called The Evangelicals, and she does a fantastic job as a historian kind of tracking that. But basically, the, the evangelicals, they they got in bed with the Republican Party um, and gave them all the votes and lobbied for them and, and tried to mobilize all the Christian voters for the for the Republican Party so that they could get you know the moral reforms in the country they wanted to through office. And that was just pretty much a spectacular failure because – after the politicians had the votes, including the presidents who were elected at the time, you know, they didn't really need to follow through on the promises to the evangelicals. So they didn't. But every election cycle, they would lie again. And every election cycle, the evangelical leaders would happily believe them again. And it was just crazy how how willingly they they, they were used. And so that that kind of political activism, at least for the evangelical church in America, was pretty much a huge failure i think some people are still trying to keep it going but i've i never joined it but you know i never really believed in it but if i had i definitely would have given up by now (laughs) (laughs) well while we're on churchy stuff what kind of activism is there specific like examples of activism in the bible i mean is there big and by the way we I think we missed an opportunity here to quote the the great Mitch Hedberg, <laughs> who who had to say one time, uh, "I'm against protesting, but I don't know how to show it." <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But w- what kind of examples in the Bible are there of activism or or protesting? So b- before I talk about Jesus, I have to talk about something a little more important than Jesus, and that is once I tried to get my kids to like Mitch Hedberg, and they were not having it, man. Oh, God. <laughs> I would play clips over and over of them, and I would just be dying. And they would just, they judged me over and over again. <laughs> and I tried to get them to understand just the genius and the irony. You know, yeah. he says, you know, I have belt loops that are holding up my belt and belts that are holding up right. my pants. Who is the real hero? And just joke right. after joke and nothing. And I died a little inside. And yeah, now I'm not sure I'm a good father anymore because uh, I don't know how to turn it around. So I tried, though. So, um, yeah, uh, activism happens a lot in the Bible. I think it's kind of interesting. Uh, 
I was having a friend of mine named uh, Vaughn, and he's Navajo, and his wife's Navajo, and he actually speaks a language, so he's full-on native. But uh, he uh, he hates Christianity and because he, he sees it as a white man's religion that just kind of decimated his culture. Actually, when you, when you, if you go back to it historically, uh, Christianity started in Asia, you know, and in the Middle East. And Jesus was an Asian, and he was a Jew. And so when you read, like, the Old Testament prophets and a lot of the activism that happened, there's a lot of strange things that happen in the biblical tradition you don't see in other cultures at the time. For example, uh, every, every pharaoh was a god and a descend, descendant from the gods. Or if you go forward in history, every Caesar in the Roman Empire, right, had descended from the gods or was a god. And um, in Christianity, in the Old Testament, you have this tradition of God making everything and him ruling over everything. And so there's kind of this higher power that every king has to answer to. And the first king in the Israelite tradition that's really revered is a guy named uh, Saul and then King David. And both of their kingships were seen as successful or failure based on how much they complied with God's will. <clears throat> and so it's, you see a lot of activism in the Old Testament where prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're famous ones from the Old Testament, they would go to the kings. And again, these aren't European kings. These are Asian, ancient Middle Eastern kings. And so they don't mess around at all. Like, you know, mm -hmm. if you're a journalist and they want you dead, they invite you to an embassy and cut you up. And that was it. And so uh, it's a little slap to Saudi, but uh, um, what what happened was uh, took me a second. <laughs> yeah. uh, but what happened was uh, a lot of those prophets got murdered, and that's because they would they would call their kings out. You know, one king took a woman and had the guy's wife set, uh, put him on the front line in battle, so make sure he would die, and then he took his wife because he'd already gotten her pregnant. And it didn't look good. So after he killed the husband, a prophet found out about it, and he went out and he called out the king. Um, another prophet went to a king and called him out for being too eager to join with another foreign power instead of trusting in God. And so, like, one guy got sawed in half, you know, from the crotch up. There's this weird tradition in the Bible, which doesn't happen in Middle Eastern cultures much even today. But back then, where they basically had to answer to God, and there was these people called prophets who could come and they could call the king out on behalf of God. And a lot of times that would what that would do is that would start social movements within the country. Sometimes it would lead to civil war. Sometimes it would lead to actual changes in policy. Civil so, yeah. war because because some sided with the, the prophet and some sided with the king? Yeah, and then you had competing prophets, right? Uh, so one prophet okay. would say, we should do this. And the other prophets would say, well, God talked to me too. And he said this. And so, <laughs> you know... It's religion. It gets complicated. There's humans involved. It's kind of a clown show. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the, I think the activist part, though, is there's this tradition in the Bible where kings have to answer to somebody. And that was just power is absolute in ancient Asian countries, especially in the ancient Near East, the Middle East. And so the Bible kind of has a weird, a weird train of thought that way. And then, of course, Jesus, um, he's seen as quite the activist. In fact, in, in the 60s, and a lot of communists and socialists and revolutionaries would claim Jesus as kind of, he was the first socialist, or he was the first communist. And um, while I don't agree with that, because I think it's kind of simplistic, there's, there's no doubt that Jesus was very revolutionary for his time. And you can see that 
we might get into the details about how down the road, but the way he died was by crucifixion, and that was a Roman punishment that they adopted and perfected from the Persians. And so uh, crucifixion was a political form of tor- uh, execution. So for us, uh, we don't think of it this way because we see the cross so much. But in his day, Jesus' death on the cross would have been seen as dying by firing squad or dying in an electric chair. You know, um, So it, it wasn't at the time quite as symbolic as we've made it? or No, it was, it was very practical because what happened is uh, um, there was a, a religious and political sect in Judaism at the time that basically all the powerful people Jesus threatened quite a bit. They didn't like his style. And uh, that's because he didn't think anyone needed to go through them to connect with God. So he thought the whole temple system, the bureaucracy, the priesthood, all, all this stuff was unnecessary. That was a huge threat to the power structure at the time. And so what they did is they manipulated political events, and they got the Roman Empire to execute him. And then the sign they hung above his head when they executed him is king of the Jews. And so it was a political execution uh, taken on with political reasons. It's because this person was usurping their power and taking power from them and giving it to the wrong people. And he just had to be taken care of. And so that's what they did. And uh, not a lot of people got crucified back then. There were other ways to kill people. Like if you were going to be executed as a Roman citizen, they would just cut your head off because that was seen as the humane way. But crucifixion was actually designed to be as humiliating and torturing as po- torturous as possible. In fact, uh, you know, another word for a cross is a crux. And that's mm-hmm. where we get the word excruciating. It means out of the cross. And so it's it's such a painful and, and humiliating way to die that we made up a new word for it. And um, it was reserved for traitors and revolutionaries and um, what we would think of as terrorists and people like that. And so Jesus was, was seen as one of these people. Even though he was peaceful, he was still a huge hassle. Mm-hmm. And so um, there was this festival, and uh, the governor at the time, his name was Pilate, he was worried that Jesus was going to start a riot or some kind of revolution while all these Jews were in the city of Jerusalem. And so he just thought he knew he was innocent, but he just thought it'd be easier to kill him. So he would have to deal with it. So that's what he did. And so he had a politician who worked with other politicians to crucify Jesus for political reasons in a political way. And so, yeah, it was, it was basically because of Jesus activism that he died. So was he kind of like a uh, public enemy fight the power kind of like angry or was it more um, he was speaking his mind and people started and people started to take notice and, and have his back kind of thing? He was a little of both. The problem with Jesus is a lot of people try to co-opt him into their group, and he just never cooperated. He was just a big weirdo. Uh, at one time, they tried to force him to be king, um, and he refused. And so he actually had to sneak away from the meeting where they were going to force him to be king. Because that wasn't his thing. And then when he got arrested, um, one of his disciples pulled out a sword and cut the ear off of one of the days trying to, trying to arrest them. And Jesus told him to put away the sword because he wasn't leading a violent revolution. It was a different kind. And then when he talked to Pilate, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And his response was, my kingdom's not of this world. And so he was really kind of this cryptic, sage, Middle Eastern weirdo guy. And uh, he didn't fit into any groups because he would actually spend time with the wrong people and empower the wrong people. You know, it was taken for granted in ancient times that 
racism was a fact of life and that it was true. You know, that mm-hmm. you, even now, if we say someone comes from a certain part of town or the wrong side of the tracks, we make certain judgments about them, you know. Um, it was it was like that back in the ancient world, except people were open and accepting about it. So Jesus came from this backwoods town called Nazareth, which was known for having a lot of revolutionaries in the area. And so they judged him for that. He was he was Jew through and through, and he spent a lot of his time with Jews. And so they expected him to be Jewish. And the, the Jews at the time, the way the country was split up, there was this country right above him called Samaria. And they were kind of seen as sold out, dirty, irreligious, pagan Jews like half-breed Jews, and they were called the Samaritans. And uh, Jesus would travel. He'd he'd speak to Samaritans. He'd heal Samaritans. He would uh, speak to women, which back then was wildly inappropriate. So he'd speak to women. He would take women on as his disciples. He would treat them. He had the audacity to treat them as if they were just as intelligent and capable as men, which in the ancient Middle East didn't go over well. And so or in modern was, Middle East. Yeah, Exactly. Um, there was people called lepers who had various skin diseases, you know, because hygiene was was not as advanced back then. <clears throat> and anytime you had a skin sickness, they were a little superstitious, so they thought that was a curse from God. So you didn't get it because of bad hygiene, but you got it because God knew about some kind of secret sin you did and he was punishing you. And so Jesus would, you were supposed to shun those people because they're impure and they're bad and they're like the lowest caste of the group, you know. But is Jesus, he, was, is, is this where he washed their feet? Um, he washed his disciples' feet. Oh, okay. Another nice. action that was inappropriate, too. One I of hated, his disciples tried I hated to stop. that part of the Bible. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. Slaves, you know, slavery was very common back then, as it is today. It's actually more common now. It's just less obvious. But um, the slaves were the ones who washed people's feet, and Jesus did that voluntarily. So it was really confusing to the people in the room because he was the rabbi. You know, he was supposed to be the guy in charge and on top. And then, like I said, he would interact with lepers. And he would talk about the ways people should live and it should be differently. And so, yeah, it was kind of, I don't know, I think the the big problem with Jesus is his goal was to subvert the current social order in such a drastic way that he thought politics would be inadequate and too small to do it, although he would do some of it through, through politics. But I think his method was more, he wanted to completely change the people he interacted with. And he thought by dropping that pebble in the pond, the ripples would go far. And it seems like it has, if you jump forward 2000 years, you know, but a third of the planet claims to be Christian. And a lot of the ideas about human rights and things like that, we've kind of derived from Christian philosophy. And so, uh, I don't know. seems like it worked out. So if he was at a protest current day, if, uh, let me put it like this. If, if Jesus' message could fit on a sign at a protest, what what would that message be, either for current day or for back then? It would kind of be like that slogan that says, uh, everyone thinks of the world, but no one thinks of changing themselves, but with a little footnote on it. And the footnote would read something like, um, but we also don't have the power to change ourselves, so we need God to do that. And so, so for yeah. him, for him, I think the the idea was, <clears throat> if we can, uh, we almost have to. What's the word? He thought he thought the main problem in the world wasn't just bad politics, and it wasn't just bad policy, and it it wasn't just greed or these things. He thought the main problem in the world was kind of this mix of good and evil we have in every human soul, 
and you know we all have this line that goes down us and we're both good and we're we're bad and it's all in one person and it's kind of a confusing thing to be human and he just felt like changing the heart is how you actually change the person and so um i don't think his goal was political reform because he thought it would be too shallow but he thought if he could somehow reform the human heart through faith in god that um if you if you were spiritually reformed and then you spent your life on helping others have a more truthful, beautiful life, and you took radical responsibility for your own life, and you lived this life of what, the, what Christians call grace, where that spiritual reforming always continues to happen in you as a gift from God. I think he, thought, he saw that as the real way to um, rearrange the social order. And I think he thought if that could happen on a wide scale, that the social order would be subverted and destroyed and rebuilt in a, in a whole different way. And with that as a backdrop, it's sort of hard uh, to understand why Christianity now has uh, not a not a great reputation in in some circles. Yeah, I totally get it. To be honest, like I didn't grow up in the church, and so when I started going to church, I didn't really like church people. Mm-hmm. And I've been a pastor for twenty years now, and I'm kind of still deciding. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's a. Uh, I think. Um, we always want to, we always want to co-op Jesus for our own reasons. That's a dangerous thing. You know, I was having a conversation about illegal immigration with a guy, and uh, I just kind of laid out that Jesus Himself was a refugee and an immigrant, and I wasn't suggesting any specific policy because I'm not qualified to do that. But I was just saying that if we're excluding people because of fear, and I'm speaking to Christians, you know, from a Christian perspective. So I said, if we're excluding people because of fear, then there's no other way to label that except cowardice, and that Christians shouldn't be cowards. Mm-hmm. And so if we're excluding people because of fear, that's not a valid reason to do it, and that Jesus lived his life <clears throat> interacting with all kinds of the wrong kind of people just because he had no fear. Um, he had too much love, and there wasn't any room for fear. And so he just did what was helpful to people, regardless of whatever labels we like to put on them. And, uh, you know, people took offense to that, mostly the conservatives in the group. And I quoted a bunch of verses so I could sound all churchy and spiritual and stuff. And then uh, one of the guys responded, well, Jesus also said, don't throw your sheep among wolves. And so I don't think we should let immigrants come in because uh, they're going to destroy the country. And the only problem with that is, you know, that Bible verse that says, don't throw your sheep among wolves. Well, I don't know who he thought he was talking to, but I'm a pastor, and I've read the Bible a lot, and that verse doesn't exist. Like, he just never <laughs> said that. <laughs> so so I pointed that out to him. I'm like, do you have a Bible reference on that? Because I don't think he ever even said that. And the uh, rest of my response was, if, if, you have to make a, if you have to make up Bible words and put words in Jesus' mouth, and you want God to be on your side that bad, I got nothing for you. Mm-hmm. But I see that happen all the time where, and it's not just, I think it's human nature. I don't think it's just Christians. Um, I've seen this happen with other religions and, and, you know, politics all over the place, but we kind of want what we want and we want to leverage whatever we can get from everywhere to try and make that happen. And, uh, politicians, they'll do it with religion. No problem. Like they won't bat an eye about it. And they can tell you with a straight face that Jesus is Democrat or Republican without realizing that those categories didn't even exist in this day. And that Mm -hmm. if they did, He'd probably fit in with them as good as he fit in with any other group, which was not very good at all. 
So yeah, I right. think uh, I think we've gotten a bad Christians have gotten a bad rap um, for a couple reasons. One is uh, one is Christians have been bad. Like we really think the way to change the world is with this cheap activism we've been talking about. So they kind of get together and high five each other and hold each other's wings and talk crap about whatever cause they want to talk about, but they don't actually do anything. So I think that part is definitely legitimate. Um, I think another part of it is um, sometimes we'd rather be right than helpful. Yeah. You know, and so we want people to know abortion's wrong. But actually, I preached a sermon on abortion recently, and I asked, "What does it mean to be pro-life?" You know, I know this is a controversial topic, but Basically, my big take-home was if you guys aren't fostering or adopting kids or sacrificing a lot to give unaborted kids a chance, then you're not pro-life. And that went over really well, as you can imagine. Right. (laughs) And so it's kind of this cheap activism that people, that everybody, not just Christians, but I think we should expect more from Christians because, you know, they're supposed to know God and love and Jesus. And then the the victim card I'll play in all this is I think – it's hard to remember the last time a Christian was portrayed positively in the media. Right. You know? And so I think uh, it's just more acceptable now to ridicule Christians and their viewpoints. And, um, you know, people can say things about Christians that you would never tolerate them saying about Muslims or any other group. And so I think uh, a lot of people just don't know any Christians, really. They might know some people who go to church, but um, I think... You know, I had a friend who asked, how do you interact with Muslims? And I said, well, the first step is to find one and make them your friend. You know, yeah. And uh, he was kind of worried that they were all running around with bombs strapped to their chest. And so uh, my strategy was, well, if he could make a Muslim friend, he'd know that that's just not the case. And I wouldn't have to teach him stuff because he'd just know it because he'd know somebody who was a Muslim. Yeah, I think people kind of have bought into the propaganda about what a Christian is. Uh, through the media, who, let's be honest, isn't, isn't very friendly towards Christianity. And I think that's how we've gotten to the place where Christianity is seen as a white religion when it was started in Asia by an Asian man. And uh, it's seen as kind of a modern tool of dominance when it was founded by a guy who was broken poor in the ancient Middle East in, in the who uh, himself said he was homeless. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think probably our perspective on Christianity is a a lot farther away from what it actually is. And I think part of that is the church's fault because sometimes we're a bunch of a-holes. And uh, part of it is people just believe what the media tells them to think. I think that's never a good idea. And I think that can apply, I mean, anywhere. Yeah. You know, kind of like, you know, when I was talking earlier about sort of the kind of uh, attention span we have now. And if you're a white southern republican and you're seeing protests in ferguson where people are where black people are protesting police shootings uh and you've never had a negative interaction with with police you're going to paint a picture of those black people is wrong and of course i'm being kind of broad here but uh you know it's if that's what you know and you don't have problems with police and you're going to think some kind of way about black people. Mm-hmm. And if you have, and it's the same, if you've been told this, that, and the third thing about Christians and then you're going to think, you know, and I don't think people, um, often, uh, see all sides. And I, and uh, of course I'm guilty too. And, 
one of the dumber stories I have is there's a coffee shop by my house that I go to on weekends and I had my baby there and there's always police in this coffee shop like every time <laughs> I go in there and so I was standing in line and I'm holding Che and I see him kind of smiling and I look over and he's smiling at a cop and the cop is waving at him so I took Che and turned him around very like deliberately so that he was not facing the... <laughs> but I mean and I had no reason to do that other than some not fun interactions I've had with cops while guess what breaking the law so <laughs> you know like, yeah, go figure <laughs> yeah, so, and yeah. uh so i think it's it's stuff like that and um yeah, it's easy it's just easier to do it's easier to to stand back and just disagree with somebody or something without knowing the whole story yeah life is really complicated i mean it's very complicated but humans you know we're efficient creatures <clears throat> you know we're uh just from an evolutionary perspective we're we're social animals so we're, we're good at finding a herd and joining the herd because that's how we survive and it's kind of hardwired into us and then we're also good at recognizing threats and so because that's what keeps us alive you know you know in horror movies when the person's curious about the sound and they go want to see in the basement what's making the sound right and then jason cuts their head off with a machete and you're like why'd you go down there yeah like, that's because that's how humans are. We all know that we would just get the hell out of the house, right? And that's that's how humans are wired. We, we're we better at seeing threats than we are opportunities. And there's a whole bunch of science behind it that I won't bore you with. But um, this combination of us being social animals and seeing threats more than opportunities, what it means is that one way we form groups and feel safe in the world is a lot of times we, we use – one of the glues we use for our group is a common enemy. Because if we have a common enemy, we can keep our group united. and It helps give us the glue we need to stick together and to feel safer. And so it's very hard to find a group without an enemy when you think about it, you know. Um, but it's also very simplistic. Like, you know, uh, some cops are corrupt. There's no question. There's zero question. But there's also zero question that some cops are really good. And some cops are close to burnout because they're good cops who have just seen too much crap. Right. And then some cops have marriages falling apart at home that they're trying to keep together while they're doing their job. And other, I mean, it's just, it's so complicated when you get through all the layers. And um, as humans, I think we're just not good at looking at layers and letting things stand as complicated as they actually are. And so you can see how partisan news has gotten, you know, with Fox and MSNBC. And it's, it's crazy that, objectivism in journalism isn't really even expected anymore we just kind of we go to the side that we know is already going to agree with us and then we let them tell us what we already think and then we're kind of reaffirmed in our worldview and uh, i don't think that's been good for us so i think uh yeah like you said it's not really a religious problem it's religious religion is a human thing and so it gets sucked up into this this issue just because being human is the issue I think most people are very simplistic about how they see the world. We kind of jump to conclusions. We stick to the conclusions. And sophistication doesn't come easy to us. And shades and nuances and, and tones and colors. I mean, it's it's hard. So, Well, and uh, we're going to cherry pick whatever fits our narrative the best, whether it's yeah. at an individual level or 
you know, as a group, you know, it's um, like I could go on and on about the government and all the corrupt things they've done to native people or, or lots of people, really poor people and women and whoever else. And, um, but yeah, that doesn't tell a whole story. Um, and well, especially it's when you think about, you know, we have Al Gore who gave us the internet and if there's right. no internet, there'd be no YouTube. And if there's no YouTube, there's no cat videos for me to watch. And right. That would be a world I don't want to live in anymore. Yeah. The, the phrase <laughs> Rick roll wouldn't even exist. Yeah. You know? And I can't accept that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was tripping out on this. Uh, I was thinking about, I don't know if we were recording when I brought up the blood quantum thing about uh, natives kind of being one of the, the only groups. And I think Hawaiians are probably the two main ones where we have to sort of have proof of how native or not native mm-hmm. or we are. Um, yeah. You just don't hear about that very much, you know, and I was thinking about how that all came about. And a lot of it goes back to land rights and things like that. Um, and how nuts it is that we have to prove to somebody and I do this myself, how native I am. I, I carry around my tribal ID with me at all times, even though mm-hmm. the chances I'm going to need it are maybe one in a million on a day-to-day yeah. basis. Yeah. But it's like that off chance that I encounter another native or just for some reason have a, a need to pull it out. Like, And just trying to think of where that where that comes from, that need to prove my blood yeah and uh and how native native tribes were not you know they they didn't operate back in the day based on how much blood you have it was who it was your kin it was who your relatives are and it was uh you know it it didn't matter and it became this question of this percentage of blood which is i think it's kind of ludicrous to have that be some kind of qualifier but um yeah it's crazy the different qualifications and labels we we and they're all arbitrary you know they're all pretty crazy but like i have a friend who was a black guy and he's light-skinned black and so he had other black people call him uncle tom and stuff just because his skin wasn't as dark as their skin you know and for a black person to call another black person an uncle tom like that's not a small insult and so It was well, a, where I was, I, I'm where I was going with that is that that was a construct that I, I wanted to blame on the United States government. That's where uh, I was going with that is that this is something that my people could point to the government and say these bad people did this and this idea that they're making it prove or they're making us prove our uh, heritage to them, but it has flipped to where we're now proving it to each other. That's where I was going with that. Oh, so it was almost like uh, like blaming the government for just another form of social control over Indians, right? Is that what right. You're talking about? Yeah, yeah, and that and that it was it's easy because if I have this narrative that the government is this big bad monster that is is smushing people down with their with its thumb, that was that was another example I could use that fits my narrative of mm. this big evil government. That's what that's where I was going with that whole blood quantum thing but it's hard not to find a common enemy isn't it yeah i mean that's what's going back to my bible thump and stuff you know jesus uh he didn't really have a common enemy really 
I mean, of course, anything that was evil, anything that was dark, anything that was destroyed or still life, stole life. But he, his premise was that you needed God's help to confront all the evil within yourself. And you needed grace to change all that into beauty so that the world could be a better place. Man, that's, I don't know how he started a movement without having a common enemy, to be honest. Because like every Christian group I think of now, they have people they disagree with and they talk about they don't like. Mm-hmm. And just every human group, they all have their rivals and their enemies and people on the outside that they kind of vilify. I've, I've also often thought it would be easier to be a, I'd be a more popular preacher if I just took a hard line in one direction. If I really wanted to be a, a very popular preacher, I would just go super far right conservative because I can be provocative and go the party line hardcore, you know, and I can make it sound like Jesus agrees with me on every point. I could tell people what I know they already want to hear about things, and I think they would love it and my church would be bigger for it. It's hard trying to be honest and trying to start a movement where there's where the enemy is all the brokenness within yourself. And the way to overcome it isn't by destroying it, but it's loving it back to wholeness, you know? Mm-hmm. And so trying to get people to live with that, with, without an enemy, that's not easy. And I'll be honest, I, I don't think I figured it out yet, but... I hope I do at some point because it's kind of supposed to be my life's work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's um, – I, I don't know. I thought um, – I, I'm not a Bible thumper by any means and mm-hmm. used to be atheist just uh, just to kind of say I was, you know, just, yeah. to, just to stick it to somebody, you know, or mm-hmm. go against the grain. But um, definitely in the last few years – uh, found a spirituality um, that's undefined mm-hmm. and unexplained. And I don't spend really any time trying to define it or explain it other than having a impartial person to talk to mm-hmm. <laughs> when I'm by myself. And that's yeah. really all it is. And then like uh, kind of an impartial person or entity to be, to show gratitude to, mm. which is always the first thing. Cause I have these daily conversations and, um, it, the first thing is always gratitude, whether it's just day to day stuff or, uh, you know, thanks for me noticing that car that was merging, yeah, you know, and totally. stuff like that. And then, and then it's like, and then at the end, it's kind of like, Oh, by the way, uh, I got this job interview. Uh, if you could help me out, like that'd be cool. <laughs> like I'm not really asking. I know you're not a genie, and um, but that all developed in the last couple years, especially uh, when I had stopped drinking. And it wasn't like a, uh, it wasn't like a uh, higher power thing. Like oh, you got to have a higher power to do this. It just started as something I was like, maybe if I keep sort of uh, almost like a mantra. If I kind of just keep repeating this every day, you know, and put it out into the universe, things will start happening. And that's kind of how it started to work. And then Mm. once I noticed uh, things happening that I was seeking, and I can't think of any examples, but, you know, it was like, well, maybe there's something to this. And I I wouldn't even, I can't really call it a prayer. It's just, it's just putting stuff out and uh, it's been different since then it's made life a little easier to uh accept as it comes do you feel like do you feel more connected to 
just life or all things since you've kind of started doing some of these spiritual practices? It just seems like it's one of those things like, uh, you know, you attract what you promote is what it feels like. Mm-hmm. And uh, if uh, something's just bottled up in me, I don't know how it has anywhere to go. So it feels like there's something um, just by saying certain things out loud to no one in particular, but releasing them from myself out into the the cosmos uh, mm-hmm. that it's able to then latch on to whatever it needs to latch on to, to either for me to be rid of it or for what it is I'm seeking to then kind of boomerang back. Um, but uh, I don't know if, I mean. Um, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. So by, <clears throat> by like expressing it, it kind of completes by expressing it, it kind of completes the feeling or the thought itself. Yeah. And it kind of tunes you up to to receiving it back if it's coming back. And if it's the kind of thing where you're just kind of completing it, the thought or expressing it, there's a sense of kind of some cathartic, like you're unburdening yourself with it. Mm-hmm. Huh? Yeah. yeah. And even when I've asked for specific things, like uh, even corny stuff, like in uh, having those kind of, turn out in my favor it's like okay then uh maybe maybe i'm not so uh crazy (laughs) for thinking that might work you know like um i mean and it's it's been consistent enough that you know if i if i start to lay down without kind of going through that ritual i don't feel right Mm. like you know and i either have to lay there in bed and and have this conversation mentally but still Mm -hmm. projecting it trying to have this conversation but sometimes i will actually have to get out of bed and and to make sure i don't fall asleep in the middle of it but um, but just that i i I feel like i've seen enough results that i need to keep doing it and i'm not and i'm like even if these results are coincidence i uh got a feeling within me that what i did worked so I'm not hurting anybody. Why not keep doing it? Yeah, I was about to say, it's obviously not hurting anything, huh? Yeah. You know, one thing that kind of, uh, my prayer is more directed towards, you know, God, what I believe to be person, but it's super similar to what you're doing. And uh, one thing it's, I'm still growing and I need to get better at, but one thing it's helped me with is, you know, I was a super angry young man. And now I'm a pretty angry old man, but I think I'm a little less angry. And, uh, I don't know about you, but when I grew up, I just kind of felt like the whole universe was set against me. And a psychologist called it learned helplessness, and it's pretty common in, in poor poor families. But uh, I just kind of felt like the school was against me, the teachers were against me, nobody wanted me to succeed. For an atheist, I was pretty pissed off at God, who wasn't even supposed to be there, you know? I felt <laughs> like he was against me. And so yeah. I was just kind of, I felt like all these things were against me, and and practicing true gratitude and, and some of the things you've been talking about, that's kind of helped me see that, well, actually, you know, maybe maybe the universe is in my favor a little bit, too. Like, maybe it's, maybe it's for me. Maybe it's not just against me. And the only so, thing that's hard to, uh, uh, that makes that confusing is, you know, because then I'm like, I say, yeah, and, you know, if you, if you can uh, 
help me stretch this paycheck, you know, the dumb stuff. But then I'm like, yeah, um, thank you for this really healthy family I have and that most of my closest family and friends are healthy and, but watch out for the ones that are struggling kind of thing. That's all well and good. But then when you see kind of stuff like shootings and, you know, the really ill stuff that happens, then that's yeah. when it gets hard. And I think that's probably hard for the hardcorest of Christian people when you see just gnarly stuff happening to people that don't seem to deserve it. Um, I think that would trip anybody up. It certainly does me. Um, yeah, but I still, I still just uh, am grateful for the, the closest to me being okay. Yeah. I think it helps me bounce back from that stuff because that stuff actually affects me a lot. And, you know, one of the biggest struggles I have with God over the years is uh, I, I tend to doubt God a lot. And what I doubt him a lot about is, just all the shit, you know? And I think you should be better, smarter than this. Like, why is there all this crap here? And uh, I've read tons of philosophy on it, and I've thought about it a lot, but just I'm talking on a gut level right now. On a gut level, I just uh, I get mad at God sometimes because there's just so much crap. And uh, But what, what I've found is the more I'm connected and rooted, the the more resilient I am. Because, you know, life life is tragedy. I mean, it's going to happen at some point Yeah. around us. And, you know, you've, you've been through some tragedy yourself. And you've gotten breaks, but that's not the last tragic thing that will happen to you. And I haven't seen the last tragic thing that will happen to me. I mean, life is just tragedy. That's something I learned from Buddhism that I, I saw Christianity agreed with, is that life is difficult. But, um... If I can be less angry to start off, I think I can bounce back from a lot of that tragedy a lot better and kind of be more productive about it from an emotional perspective. I think what helped me too, and uh, this is a pretty recent development, is just being able to say, uh, uh, look, I don't understand everything that's going on. And uh, and, uh, there may be some reason for the things happening i don't know what that reason is and i can't really do anything about it so um that's when i go back to that thank you for my people being good mm-hmm. at least for now and uh because even it's like even dumb stuff i'll i'll get up you know like you know if you spill a scoop of ice cream on the floor and you're just like why why the hell did that you know <laughs> And then I just kind of have exactly, and yeah, I get, totally. I'll get legit like mad about it. And then I'm, uh, but I've just lately just been able to go. All right, well, I don't know, I don't understand that one, <laughs> but I'm sure, I'm sure there's some sort of plan. So it's like, helped you accept stuff. Yeah, because I'm just gonna need <sighs> another scoop. In in some cases, <laughs> I'm just gonna wash off the scoop that I dropped. But uh, just eat the top half. I didn't touch the ground. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah. uh, when you sobered up, did you do a lot of programming for that? or I did initially. I was in a program called uh, Smart Recovery because uh, I had done AA and, I'd, um, and I'm not going to knock AA at all. I just had gotten kind of tired of it. And gotcha. One of the things about AA, at least the groups I was involved in, people hang with other AA people and yeah. everything sort of becomes an AA event and – Especially uh, in the beginning when a lot of them have you do like 90 and 90, you know? Yeah. You don't you don't really have a choice not to hang with anyone else. Yeah. And it just kind of becomes hard to, at least for me, it was hard to kind of exist outside of 
AA functions, you know, and, mm. um, so this time around when I decided I needed to quit again, I had just, I found this group called smart recovery and it wasn't, um, or isn't, um, faith based. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no higher power thing. It's more scientific study and it's more, uh, work, you know, it's more writing things out and gotcha. more psychology and human and, nature type stuff. Yeah. And yeah. there's still a group aspect to it. Um, so I was going to a group every Wednesday and, um, the group was, uh, smaller and it, it was kind of just a, um, it was more of just like a check-in. It was more of a place to kind of come and unload once a week. Gotcha. And sometimes that was enough. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I don't know. There was something different about my mindset this time around just where I just knew what was what was going on wasn't working for me anymore. And uh-huh. and part of that was like uh, you know, I was drinking so heavily when my son died, like uh, you know, I would wake up some mornings disappointed that I had even woke up. Like mm. I would wake up and go, Seriously, dude, I I drank like I can't believe that wasn't enough. Gotcha. And so this is a serious uh, self-destructive phase. Oh yeah. I yeah. was it was real dark. And uh what's funny is well not funny, but what kind of what kind of opened my eyes is my girlfriend Laura, this was before we got serious. She was like she said, I think if I was in a face-off, you know, meaning her, if she was in a face-off with whiskey, she would lose. And I was like, nah, come on, get out of here. No, I, I care about you. And she's like, you choose whiskey all the time. She's like, you drink at work. She's like, I bet if I went to your car, there's whiskey in your trunk. Like, you drink and drive. Like, you don't give. Like, it's all about whiskey. And I had blown her off to get drunk a couple mm-hmm. of different times, you know. And so for her to kind of word it like, whiskey is your priority. Like, I just had never thought about that. Gotcha. And even though it clearly was, yeah. it was obvious. Um, so when she said that I, you know, that I would choose whiskey over everything, that kind of just that changed everything. Because clearly was, in your heart, she was more important to you, but you weren't living that way, huh? Yeah, yeah. exactly. I was just uh, really going through the motions, and and I, I didn't realize it at the time, but. Uh, and I don't think a lot of people that are really in the, the hard part of their addiction, I don't think we realize what we put people through. Because mm. we think we're doing it to ourselves. And, and I thought I was. Like, if I'm in my room, if I'm in my room in the dark, drinking my whiskey, who am I hurting? Yeah. And, <clears throat> but I was hurting everybody because... Uh, you put your people in a position where you either have to drink in front of them and they have to watch you die or you cut them off and they don't, they don't get to see where you're at and what's going on and if you're okay. And yeah, that's hard, man. Cause that, that feels like rejection. And then you feel helpless on top of rejection and you're worried yeah. because you don't know what's going on. And yeah, that's, that's a personal hell for sure. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> I just don't know if people always realize that. And, and I, 
and that's that kind of helped when she told me that about you know where my priorities were at and mm. it's funny i quit drinking while i was still drunk which i'm sure happens all the time i'm sure there are plenty of people that are hammered say i'm never doing this again and i woke up the next day and and i've i've done that myself a bunch of times and mm-hmm. and really said that to get people off my back mostly like yeah yeah, yeah i know i won't do this again but i woke up that next day and was like okay i guess i'm doing this like and i stuck to it and i didn't i didn't go back um there wasn't like a uh toning it down period it was just like okay i gotta do this i think i went to a meeting like two days later or maybe maybe not two days maybe the next week the next time the, the meeting came up i went and and I remember how scared I was walking into that meeting because I knew what those meetings were like. Yeah. Not necessarily smart meetings, but just recovery meetings. Right. I knew what I was walking into, but I was still afraid. Like, who's going to be in here? What are they going to, you know, am I going to talk? Am I going to listen? And just realizing that so many people know what it's like is one of the best uh, most important parts about those meetings mm. they've all been down and out and and had that whatever it is that their vice was you know they lived for it and they know what it's like to try and live without it so did you relapse a lot after when you when you're trying to recover or it sounds like you just kind of decided and uh no i haven't relapsed no and i didn't really do that the first time I that I quit drinking either. Um, the first time was um, for five years. I didn't drink. And um, and then one day I just decided I was going to drink again. Mm. And uh, but was it after BAMS Fest, right? Uh, no, it was before, actually. Oh, okay. It's, it's one of my big regrets in life that I started to drink while he was still around. Mm. Uh, and I did all the stuff that uh, people like me do, and I started to tell myself I'd earned it or deserved right. it or whatever. It wasn't going to be a big deal, and of course it was. Um, uh, I went right back to it being uh, problematic. But yeah, then of course when he died, yeah, I was, I was on a crazy train for sure. Yeah, totally. But then everything turned around. I mean, and I remember one of the things I would get sick of in meetings, especially when you're first getting sober, is kind of the old timers talking about how great life gets once you get sober. I didn't always buy it, you know, like I didn't see the world changing when you're first sober. And even even the first time around, I didn't see it changing a lot after a, a couple years sober. I was like, well, you know, I still am not making that much money. I'm kind of broke all the time. You know, I don't really see it that differently other than whiskey's not involved. It just felt like it was, it wasn't as complicated, Hmm. but it didn't feel a ton better, you know? Yeah. But this time around, you know, there are definite like measurable things that have improved in my life as as a result um i mean i went from about 260 to 205 you know weight wise in uh 
just better job, better health, better car in a house, better, you know, just things just improved when I was, when I took all that out of the mm. equation. Cause I started living again. I started paying attention and having yeah. drive, you know, that was all gone. Just, I was just I, purely going through the motions of what life is. So, uh, to bring it back around, um, with activism how how far have you gotten in terms of figuring out how to do it because i find myself i'd like to be more of an activist and i work in the faith community and do some community organizing and you know we we mobilize stuff to like combat human trafficking and we have all kinds of social justice efforts we do but i never feel like i'm doing very much or enough you know what i mean like i feel like i don't know i guess if i feel like i'm not martin luther king jr that i'm not doing anything but yeah. uh, so I just wonder, like, how far have you gotten in terms of how to be an activist and how to affect some of the change or open up the world in the ways you'd like to? I think that uh, I, I think that anybody, everybody should, at the very least, educate themselves and on anything. Don't just rely on the two minute you know youtube video that somebody posted on their timeline or that was on the news and like don't take everything at face value um i mean if you're not gonna go get a piece of cardboard and and staple it to a stick and drive across town and wave it like if you're not gonna do any of that if you don't have time or the interest i think the best place to start for anybody is having knowledge and uh whether that's climate change or anything, mm-hmm. um, whatever whatever you see that seems to be um, the hot topic of the day or the year, uh, educate yourself, and um, before you make, you know, give yourself a chance to make an informed opinion and uh, not just be the uh, the the sheep with the wolf thrown in like that, yeah. that thing from the Bible or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, I think that's where you got to start. And if you are, if you are, uh, if you are then motivated to, to, to take the next step and then so be it, but uh, give yourself the, the opportunity to um, make your own decision and decide what you think is right or wrong. So don't just react and go with it. Actually think things through and, and decide on a course of action. Yeah, exactly. Because I'm not an activist, and um, but I, I read a lot. And um, I, I like to be as informed as I can. And, and even that is, is challenging when there's soccer practices. And, you know, I think that's the other part of, um activism is just there's life to deal with too just everyday life then mm-hmm. and uh some people would say that isn't an excuse but uh you know you also have to have priorities yeah um i don't know if i'll ever be an activist and and it's funny because my pop and um uh, my cousin garrick where we were talking about all this one time about the american indian movement and i had said like uh, you know, I wonder if I was born in a different era if I would have been more involved in in this kind of stuff. And 
and my cousin Garrick was like, yeah, I think he would have. I think he would have been out there on the front lines. I'm like, I could be on the front lines now. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't think the stuff that they were passionate about then have changed all that much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wasn't at Standing Rock and I haven't, uh, I haven't uh, gone down to any uh, missing and indigenous women marches and, I don't know. I don't know if I'm wired that way. I just, I think some people, I think some people are though. I think some people are wired to get out there and, and, and yell and and try to make a difference that way. But somehow that's not me, Mm. but I support the people that do. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard because being a pastor, you know, there's, there's lots of different expressions of Christianity and, uh, people, kind of meet God and live their lives in their own way. And we all have different temperaments and different gifts and different kind of personality, you know, how we're made up and stuff. Some people are more action-oriented. Some are more thinkers and less talk, uh, more talkers, less walkers, you know. But uh, yeah, I think um, for those who are listening, like from a Christian perspective, I'd say, I think just just try and make, make the world more beautiful by the end of the day than when you started it. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, there's real simple, practical ways you can do that in a life you already have. <clears throat> I don't think you need to become MLK or or go off you know, across the country and do a march. I'm, I'm guessing there's stuff that God has already put in everybody's hands that they could be more faithful with now. They could make more beautiful now. They could be more responsible with now. And uh, I think if you can add beauty to whatever God's already put in your hands, you know, by the end of the day when you started, it's good. And if you can do that most of your life, you know, there'll be times when tragedy happens, things are hard, and your goal changes. You're not trying to add beauty. You're just trying to make it to the next day. And that's okay, too. But I think in general, if, uh, if, if you can just put more love and more beauty into the world with the things that are already right in front of you, you know, in the Bible, there's a verse that says, if you've been faithful with the little that you've been entrusted with, then God will give you more. And uh, I'm not sure it's a good idea to go out there and try and change the world before you've worked on knowing what it actually takes to change yourself. Because then you're kind of expecting of everybody else something you haven't even done. And uh, that does a lot of things. One, it makes you a hypocrite, but two, it also makes it to where you don't really even know how to help people. Because... You haven't successfully helped yourself, you know. So I think uh, if you don't know your right from your left, left yet, and I'd say yeah, learn, listen, don't go with the gut reaction. But there's things in your life today you can make more beautiful when you by the time you go to sleep at night. I think if you can be faithful with those things, I think that'd be a good kind of activism to start with. I think the once you start that journey, God will make the rest of the walk plain to you as you go along. Well, we covered a lot of ground, man. I'm glad we chatted. Yeah, we did. We went we went all around the globe on that one. I think we solved all of the world's problems, so that was a good good chat. Oh yeah, please tell me you were recording it. I, uh, I don't, don't want to have to go through that again. Yeah, I think it's recording. It's still recording. <laughs> we're good okay. to go. Good. 